My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me today is Daniel Perris. Daniel, introduce to the audience and to me. What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you doing currently? Good afternoon, everyone. Again, I'm Daniel Perris. Michael, thank you for inviting me to be on your show. I am by day a portfolio manager. I oversee the dividend-focused portfolios at Federated Hermes. Federated's a, a large diversified asset manager based in Pittsburgh. But I came to that profession with a history background. And I was uh, trained in the late Reagan Cold War uh, in modern Russian history to be a Sovietologist, essentially. I uh, got a PhD in uh, 20th century Russian history right as the Soviet Union was falling apart. I stayed in teaching for a few years, and then I pivoted into financial research. And one thing led to another. And I, as I ended up in portfolio management, my historical interest and, and approach to issues reasserted itself uh, in order to get into the profession as an analyst. I had to you know, take the CFA exam or go get an M MBA and do whatever I was told and do it quickly in order to make it through all the hoops. But once I was settled in the new profession, my background and training and inclination as a historian kicked in. And that's sort of what has driven both my career and my writing for the past 15, 20 years. It's not surprising that somebody with a background in history and kind of an appreciation of where we've come would end up focused on cash flow based investing or dividend investing. And given my academic background, I couldn't resist the temptation to start writing about it. And so the book that's coming out now is the fourth book on kind of, we'll call it broadly speaking, dividend investing, but two of the four books are, are really historical investigations into paradigms. And the first two books from about a decade ago are more nuts and bolts dividend investing analysis. If you're going to do research and go through history, history has shown that dividend investing is you know, obviously the biggest driver of total return over time. But it seems that people have forgotten how important dividends are to longer term wealth generation. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the way maybe mentality has shifted in the last decade away from dividends and more towards growth tech. Uh, thematic type plays. Yeah. And I'm interested in that as well. I'm not it puzzles me. The more I look at it, the more I am puzzled. The academics refer to it as a big puzzle because from their perches, their classrooms from the 1950s and 60s onwards, they cannot figure out why and how 99.999% of the business world operates, which is cash flow based. And, you know, they launched a war on dividends at that time. And it's covered in the book. But really, the anomaly from what I consider normal business ownership practices, particularly as a minority owner of a business, so that's where you have a smaller stake, you're not controlling the company, you would all the more inclined to insist on a, a cash-based relationship from whether it's rental real estate, farmland, a private enterprise, or even a publicly traded company. That movement away from a, a traditional cash-based relationship has occurred strikingly over the last 30, 40 years. And, and that's the paradigm that I'm referring to in the book title, the paradigm shift away from that. So if you think about the nature of private investment, public investment, anything other than pure speculation, or I know you, you have an interest in various commodities as using as indicators, but remember the people who are buying those commodities, Michael, are using them in some real business and they have to have a cash flow sensibility. They, they don't have the luxury of of just wondering whether the price of a particular commodity is going to go up or down. So it's the standard in the business world, and it was the standard in the U.S. stock market up through the 1980s. Uh, every serious business had a dividend, and some were higher, some were lower. Some rose at a faster rate, some rose at a, a slower rate. But the health of a business 
was the payment and the trajectory, the, the dividend, whether that business was publicly traded or not. Again, it applies to real estate, to uh, farmland, to any private enterprise. So what happened? What was the nature of this paradigm that we're now exiting? And again, it's a 40-year paradigm. So unless you're in your late 60s right now, you will not have known the prior paradigm, which is essentially everyone operating in the stock market other than a few uh, wizened old folks. And the, the main reason in the book, and I go through it at length, is the decline in interest rates. It really has changed the unrelenting decline in interest rates from abnormally high levels, granted, abnormally high levels. They peaked in 1981, been coming down ever since and bottomed. We use the 10-year on the equity side as kind of the base rate for looking at these things. And it bottomed in uh, the autumn of, of 2020. So that's 40 years of declining interest rates, which I use as a proxy for declining risk rates. Now, the academics will tell you that the 10-year or some other measure of a government security is the basis, mechanical basis for a formula to figure out a discount rate for an equity. That, as many of your prior guests, and I listened to in preparation for the show, I listen to a lot of your shows that do a great job, but people like John Cochran and Lynn Alden and others, you know, make it very clear how complicated using the U.S. 10-year treasury is for understanding a risk rate. But in any case, it is a fair proxy. So risk rates were declining for decades. Interest rates were declining for decades. Share buybacks, not coincidentally, look at the timing, become much easier to do due to the safe harbor provision introduced by the SEC in 1982. So 1981, 1982. They really take off in the 90s, but the green light starts in the 80s. And then I also talk about a topic which you seem to have an interest in, kind of geopolitics and political paradigms. And it's very clear this is not rocket science on that side, that we had the introduction to the, we'll call neoliberal, global neoliberal paradigm at the exact same time. Deng Xiaoping's elected and elected, comes to power in 1979, Margaret Thatcher elected in 1979, Ronald Reagan in 1980. So if all of these factors coming to play, plus, and here's on the positive side, because it would be possible to interpret this, that I'm just being negative. You have NASDAQ and the technological innovation coming out of Silicon Valley really beginning to gain speed at that time. So you have declining interest rates, the rise of buybacks, NASDAQ innovation, and the march of capital. It's almost a perfect environment for the last 40 years, up until about 2020. And in that period, which as wonderful as it has been for many, is also, if you look at it from a kind of a cash flow perspective or a business perspective, is utterly anomalous from other experiences, even growth experiences, growth stock markets, private markets, et cetera, where the cash relationship between a minority investor and the invested company is, is diminished, if not entirely stripped away. So th that's really the, you know, the main reason why I think dividends have disappeared from the U.S. stock market. And the question becomes what happens next, because most of those conditions no longer apply. The sheer buyback point, I think, is well uh, taken. I mean, traditional finance would argue there should be no difference, right, between a share buyback and a dividend. Although, uh, going back to the point about early 80s, I'm going to make the assumption there is a correlation between increased share buybacks and widening wealth gap, not just between the very rich and everybody else, but also corporations and people. Yeah. So buybacks have worked really well for corporate America, for Wall Street. I, I made a pun on social media, you know, the 1940 book, Fred Schwed, where the customer's yachts uh, shot at the brokerage fees at the time, 1940. 
and that, you know, brokerage fees have come way, way down. You know, the asset management fees have contracted for decades. And so what has replaced that great uh, source of kind of profits for, for Wall Street and its buybacks? They really help company CEOs look better. They keep the trading desks busy. They create lots of volatility. The perspective or the issue, the question, which all of your listeners can ask themselves, and they may come up with an answer that is in favor of buybacks. There's nothing wrong. That's not a buyback's not illegal, immoral, unethical. It's the academic assumption. Again, put, transport yourself, turn off your cell phone, transport yourself back to the 1950s and 1960s to the University of Chicago, to Stanford, and you writing your articles, and that's Harry Markowitz, 1952, 1959. Bill Sharp, John Lintner, 1964, 65, uh, uh, Miller and Modigliani, 1958, 1961, writing your articles about capital theory as it's emerging. And there's an assumption, which they make no, they don't hide it. They're saying, simply saying, in order for this math to work, we assume the following. And it is that an uh, investor is indifferent between a dividend payment and a, effectively an unrealized capital gain, a change in the share price uh, as an, a measure of wealth an increment of wealth. And for them, that's no big deal. You go ahead, you make that assumption and you go on in an academic setting and in all of their formulas, there is no difference between the form of return generated by a dividend and the form of return generated by a higher price. That assumption is built into pretty much everything that modern finance is about. Fast forward a couple decades, the share buybacks are sli- they did not exist at the time that all of the rules that we now follow were written from the 50s and 60s, but the share buybacks come later, but they slide in nicely under capital appreciation. They're assumed to generate capital appreciation. So it then becomes investors are indifferent to a dividend payment or a share buyback. And I stand up one person against <laughs> the crowd, millions, I guess, and say, no, I don't think so. And hear me out. Michael, dividend payment, a rent payment, a profit sharing check from the lead lag report to Michael Gaiad, a salary check from the lead lag report business to Michael Gaiad is a business outcome, as is any other kind of profit sharing above and beyond investment expenses and operating expenses. It's profit sharing. It's an outcome of the business itself. A harvested or unrealized or then harvested capital gain in lieu of a dividend, is a stock market outcome. It requires the you know, agreement of th- essentially thousands of people and a lot of timing and a lot of activity unrelated to the business itself. And so while the academics and Wall Street and the CEOs will tell you that we're returning capital to shareholders in a form of com- a combination of share buybacks and dividends, they are, from my perspective as a minority shareholder, providing very long-term capital to businesses, they couldn't be more remote. One is paying people to go away. You have to sell your shares. What a funny form of success where you would have to go sell your stake in order to realize it. Michael Guy, when you go to the grocery store once a week, do you pay the cashier with 1% of the lead lag report shares or do you pay with cash? I'm going to assume that you pay the grocer with cash. Yeah, as long as as I'm not fasting. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gaiad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. 
And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. As long as you're not fit. So, but you're not tendering your ownership stake in order to realize the success of the business. You actually have a profit distribution or, in your case, a salary that allows you to buy groceries. Whereas a, a dividend payment is just, you know, some share of the profits after all investment expenses, operating expenses have been met. It doesn't require a transaction. So these are the types of questions that if you are an outsider, if you do not just have an undergraduate degree in finance, an MBA and a CFA, but particularly a historian, you go and ask, you show up in a new environment and you ask, okay, these are interesting rules. They may be excellent rules. They may be go forward rules, but I can't help myself. I'm just going to ask, where did these rules come from and are they still applicable? And in a book that I wrote in 2018 about modern portfolio theory, I kind of highlighted that those rules were written in the 50s and 60s to address some problems in the 1920s and 30s. They did a really good job, modern portfolio theory, of addressing problems from the 20s and 30s by new rules developed in the 50s and 60s. But everyone should know that as it's presented to you now about diversification, and we, that's a separate topic, maybe for a separate spaces conversation, uh, it's not the type of diversification that was created in the 1950s and 60s by Harry Markowitz. You're using 60-year-old technology, shall we say. And it may still be relevant. It may not be. For the book that's coming out now, I'm just pointing out to everyone, hey, we've had a 40-year, almost unique environment. There's ample evidence, given what's happened in the last several years, that environment has come to an end. There's a new environment, a new paradigm likely to emerge. The old one did not survive. It's not going to survive the end of declining interest rates. It's not going to survive Donald Trump. It's not going to survive China and COVID. It's not going to survive, in effect, Russia invading Ukraine, all of which I mean the march, the unfettered march of capital and the around the world and the agreement by most market participants that all of this is a good thing and everything's working just fine. That is over dramatically. The you know global supply chain, the declining risk rates, the political consensus in the United States, the neoliberal assumption of liberal democracy at home and abroad, all in the course of three years have blown up. So the question becomes, what of your investment to, speaking of your customers, your listeners, what of our investments are set to operate well in a more normal environment where money costs something, where risk is not zero, where you may not have uh, completely benign regulators where supply chains probably need to be tightened up, where risk rates, again, I'm not referring to interest rates, but risk rates, where risk rates aren't going down and in fact may be going up. And that's really the question that the book asks. So I'm with you on that, and I, I fundamentally agree with that point. I do wonder, though, how, going back to that point about how cash flow and investors are kind of at opposite ends you know, over time, how co-movement, the proliferation of, of vehicles like mutual funds, ETFs ha have maybe created a little bit of a more permanent type of dynamic where uh, it's not much about the individual company, not stock company, 
And then, yeah, how it co-moves against the, in quotes, market, because you and I both know all the studies that show that the moment something's in an average, it like the average, right? The correlation goes up, beta goes up, despite nothing changing fundamentally with the company. How does that play into that? Because that, I got to assume, part of this kind of passive world that we're in does also throw off the structural dynamics we used to see in the past. Absolutely. I, I would say that in some ways it's simpler, for, and correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but basically... In lieu of cash, what we've seen in the environment over the last couple of decades, this is more the last 10, 15 years, is a harvested capital gain is just as good as a dividend for funding consumption, meaning everything's going up. You can consistently rely on it going up. You don't need a dividend because if you need cash a month from now or six months from now, you just harvest some capital gains. They're regularly there. There are periods of time when they're not, but generally they're there. So you don't require your business, your land, your McDonald's franchise, your publicly held securities, your rental apartments. You don't require a distribution from them. You can just go and, you know, consistently sell some assets. And the reality is that in the low interest rate environment we've had for the last 15 years, and the yield of the S&P 500 has been below 2% since the mid-1990s. And obviously, you know, where bond yields and cash yields have been until recently. In that environment, grandma and grandpa funded consumption with asset sales. Worked pretty good. Worked very well. That is leads into your question about passive versus active. And, and there the argument's sort of related. It's not an argument, it's maybe an observation. And that is a rising tide lifts all boats. We had risk rates going down for a long time. Risk rates getting to the point where they were you know, close to zero. And we saw that on Wall Street, all sorts of interesting Unicorns, which were fabulously priced, and some still are, and you know, maybe that'll work out just fine for them. But my my point is in a rising tide lifts all boat environment where discounting mechanism had become impaired. When you put a zero into a formula or close to zero into a formula like the Cap M, which is supposed to provide information about risk to you and expected return, it it creates all sorts garbage in, garbage out. And so the distinguishing business outcomes and stock market outcomes appeared to diminish. You could always borrow more money as a company. Interest rates were cheaper, leverage up. There wasn't much incentive to own old economy, cash flow generative companies when you could buy the next shiny object. And distinguishing business outcomes among the, the shiny objects was hard. So you know, just buy them all. That is absolutely a true statement. Your point is correct that investors gotten by just fine, thank you, with harvesting capital gains of passive forms of investment over the particularly last 10, 15 years. The question is, again, the historian in me, maybe the answer is, you know, that's going to work really well for the next 20 years as well. I, that's certainly possible. The question is, though, will that, given how much of the environment has changed, particularly risk rates no longer declining relentlessly. I, I do believe that's going to lead to business outcomes with greater variance, meaning some businesses are going to do well, some businesses are going to do poorly. And ultimately, that'll find its way into the, into the asset values of said businesses, whether they're private equity, whether they're public equity, whether it's you know, real estate, and et cetera. So the return of risk is a differentiating character. And maybe the right answer when you have differentiated outcomes is still passive and indexing. Maybe it isn't. But clearly, there are going to be, I think there's going to be a wider variance of business outcomes. That will create a wider variance of evaluation outcomes. 
And there's certainly the opportunity, not the certainty that investors will take advantage of those variances, those greater variance, greater variances than have been the case the past 15 years. Does that imply that in those greater variances of businesses, there should be more potential survivorship bias coming, meaning a lot of companies are, for example, in the small cap space, in quote, zombie companies, a lot of debt. It's been winner take all in terms of large caps versus small caps. If you have more variances with higher for longer, which we can debate. I have my own opinions on it. I'm with you. I, I don't think rates will ever go back to zero, but stranger things have happened, right? You can't, to your point, you can't necessarily rule it out. But w- what's the implication on that in terms of just the number of stocks even surviving? Yeah, I don't disagree with you that there should be, some of the zombies should not make it. Now, it seems very unusual, the concentration last couple of years of just the market into a handful of companies. But listen, so those companies, there's nothing wrong with the products of a certain chip maker, a certain software maker, a certain social uh, media company. I may have issues with a certain EV maker, but it, it's maybe more political than not. The, the, those are companies that are obviously very successful. The issue is the valuation. And I think that is going to, there's going to be a shakeout of businesses. I'm not going to say higher or longer. Can I respectfully disagree? It's not higher for longer. It's normal for longer. The 10 year should be at four to five percent. Now, as an equity person, I focus more on the 10 year than where the Fed controls near term rates. But the 10 year at four to five percent, or call it four to six percent, some companies will be able to survive in that environment that have been around for 100 years. And other companies that have been around for 10 years are never going to survive in that environment. They just aren't. And that is the, I think, a normal, healthy development. The lower for longer was the abnormal environment. Normal for longer, four to five percent for the 10 year is a healthy environment for capital allocation. I'm sure not just the last few, but probably hundreds of your guests have have made the observation that risk rates near zero leads to bad capital allocation. Risk rates near starting risk rates, the 10-year four to five percent and risk rates in the high single digits, low to mid double digits is going to lead to much better capital allocation than we saw when risk rates were close to zero. I, I like the way that you framed that, but I'll push back on the pushback just to give it on just a, a, a point to debate. The, I'm with you, right? Four or 5%, okay, that's normal. But it's a question of nominal versus real, right? So yeah. this you know, it seems like you can have, you, you and I both remember those times in, you know, in the last decade where it was shown all these charts showing total uh, negative real rate yielding debt, right, globally. And it was just outright absurd right? That you had so much debt that was yielding negative real yields. But so you've got all this government debt, presumably the way they pay that off is through having negative real rates. So could you be in a more normal environment if the incentive by the policymakers is still to maintain negative real rates, even if the nominal is more elevated? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll leave that to the Lynn Aldens and others of that as to the math associated there. I will say that the the companies that tend to be dividend payers and can pay and raise their the distributions over time tend to have operated in a variety of economic environments, including challenging ones. And they kind of, you know, figured out how to manage their cash flows. And over a long period of time, you can use an internal rate of return. It's one of the reasons to get away from CAPM, to get away from rates, just to use an internal rate of return. It's a highly subjective, but at least it's not it. I, I have a chapter on why you shouldn't use the 10-year, even though we have to, because it's so politicized and so subject to all of the factors you're referencing, yeah, the return of inflation and the return of the distinction between nominal and real. And I, I as a practical matter, as a uh, minority business owner of these companies, I kind of say, here's an internal rate of return I'm aiming, aiming for. Yeah, it's nominal. And uh, I understand I'm going to have to keep two rates in mind between nominal and real. But but uh, I'm going to keep it simple and just focus on that IRR. Just to reset the rooms, the remaining man. Somebody please make sure you follow Daniel here on X. Then if you want to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left micro request button. And as always, this will be in podcasts under Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite platforms. Do you get a sense that maybe it's while on the one hand you can argue it's more of a layup and maybe easier to have the mindset of focusing on investing in companies that have you know solid dividends and and improved history. But at the same time, you have to be more patient. And the reason I say that is I think part of the reason why dividends have been out of favor is attention spans, right? And the ease with which, to your point, people can sell to get the cap gain instead of wait for the, the dividend and the income to come their way. Presumably, that means that it might take longer for the crowd to start paying attention right, to those companies than getting the dopamine hit of buying and selling Tesla stock or NVIDIA stock. You're absolutely correct there. And I, I would even go further as a criticism of my approach. As a practical matter for the last 10, 15 years, insisting on a cash-based relationship in my private and public investments has meant lower nominal total return because non-dividend paying stocks have moved up quite a bit the last 10, 15 years. So... They, and I sleep perfectly well at night knowing the check's in the mail, but other people sleep perfectly well at night knowing the piece of paper or the computer screen has a green. Yesterday's number's green and tomorrow's number's going to be green. That's good for them. Again, I would call into question the nature of that wealth. The only way they can consume that wealth is by actually selling. It's a funny form of success when you have to sell it in order, uh, sell your stake in order to realize wealth. But that is legal moral, ethical, and standard on Wall Street. Buy low, sell high, repeat frequently, do it over and over again. That's the name of the game. That is what is blessed by the University of Chicago and the SEC. And there's I far be it for me to go against that. Instead, though, it turns out there's a coterie of people. I don't think they're all historians. Some of them may be older. Some of them may be more cautious. Some of them may be cranky. I'm a combination of all of those, cranky, older, and more cautious saying, that's great. I'm delighted for you, my neighbor over the back fence, you telling me about how your stock portfolio is up 72% in the last three years. That's wonderful. Good for you. I am going to go back in and say, well, I'm more comfortable with the, the check in the mail. And I wish the Magnificent Seven and their ilk all the best. May they double and triple from here next week. But that's simply not the type of business, minority business ownership 
that I'm interested in. There is a give up here. Being a dividend investor not only requires patience, because if you think about it, you can sell your share of stock in anything, whether it has a dividend or not, tomorrow. But the present value of your farmland, which may not be sellable tomorrow, can be, but maybe not, or your fast food franchise or your apartment buildings, they all sort of have a price. But the real value of those assets, including publicly traded businesses, is the income stream that accrues over, frankly, many years. The reason, say, certain companies trade where they are is because these are not the, you know, the Magnificent Seven, but the heavy dividend payers whose owners are really focused on the dividends because they've done the DDM or the DCF of the income stream and said, you know, roughly adds up to what the price is and we're good with that. But that is an exercise in, in decades. If you have a large portfolio of such names, then you, you know, have the ability to have shorter time frames as well. But that is in contrast to somebody who couldn't care less whether an electronic vehicle maker is going to make money five years from now. They simply have an opportunity they perceive they may. I mean, some may be in it for five or 10 or 15 or 20 years. God bless them. They're not going to get an income stream from it, but they may be in it for a long term. But the kind of beauty of the stock, of being a stock market investor in the stock market is you can, you don't have to care about the long term. You can, you can operate this afternoon. The market's open until 4 p.m. You can do what you want to do. The challenge of being a dividend investor is that while you do have daily liquidity in the stock market, the math works out over longer measurement periods as you as those income checks come in. Of course, there is a link between dividends, beta, defensiveness. I always go back to, you know, the offensive part of the equity landscape or the sectors that tend to have the least amount of dividends, right? The the defensive sectors, utilities, staples, healthcare tend to have higher on average dividends, but also have lower betas. So the I think a connection there is the implication of an era where dividend investing, in quotes, makes a comeback. Is the implication there that you should see anyway broader volatility in the economy and beta? I mean, it sounds like that's the case, just given the idea of normal, right, for rates. Yeah, I there there are now we're often in in my day job. You know, they talk up the low beta, and and it is true for trust beta is an outcome. It's not an intention. We are low beta dividend investors can feel low beta just because essentially all the return is coming from the dividend. The share prices follow the dividend. As the dividend is increased over time, the share price follows. The total returns the combination of whatever the starting yield was plus the dividend growth rate. Dividend yield plus dividend growth equals total return. That tends to be a vis-a-vis the stock market, which is all over the place, is a low beta exercise, a low standard deviation exercise. There are some peculiar outcomes there for those who do have their spiffy CFAs and, and MBAs, uh, one of them is that it is entirely possible to generate alpha while underperforming the market. Trust me, I know of what I speak. So depending on the measurement period, not always, but because the standard deviation of returns of a dividend-focused strategy tends to be so much lower than the broader market, even if you're lagging the market, you can generate alpha. That's not what the original intention of the alpha calculation was. It was you know, risk-adjusted excess return is what the academics are trying to figure out. Jensen's alpha, Michael Jensen, who makes a, a number of appearances in my book. But it is it is possible to do it with underperforming the market. Again, that's just the, you know, the math is the math. I think there's a sleep at night factor associated with that that, you know, helps me sleep at night and, 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 and perhaps uh, the clients uh, as well. And it does imply that if the standard deviation of future market returns rises, then you know, that's going to be a challenge for some people, probably not a challenge for 
for us. There was an unusual moment up through 2019, Michael, from like, you know, 17, 16, 17, 18, 19, where the rise of the market was so steady that the standard deviation of returns of the S&P 500 declined pretty sharply and got close to our standard deviation of returns. The products that I managed didn't quite become less. But when the, think about the math, when the market rises very steadily, the standard deviation of return declines. All of the math involving alpha, information ratio, sharp ratios, et cetera, they're all kind of dependent on that. And it was a peculiar moment where you had a skyrocketing market, but it was doing it so calmly and steadily that it looked really good in the finance and the finance formulas. Normally, that's not the case. Normally, that is not the case. The stock market's going to be more volatile. And if you do have the return of you know big swings up or down, and frankly, the last two years is a perfect example of that. You have the stock market down 20% and the stock market up 20% in, in two years. That makes a real hash of the academic formulas. And I'm fine with that. That makes a hash of someone else's uh, math. So you mentioned geopolitical dynamics. The world, you can argue, is increasingly getting more volatile, or at least the volatility clustering tends to happen faster in time, closer to each other in terms of these bursts. Any sort of insight on, from a historical perspective, demand for dividend quality stocks when geopolitical risk is heightened? Or is there no impact there on flows? Yeah, I don't know if I could draw a specific conclusion there. I do think, you know, the election is going to be a significant high point of uncertainty. And if I think about what can affect dividends, there are two things. Dividends tend to come from consumer-oriented companies, so it's the health of the consumer. But longer term, it's also affected by capital spending and, and large capital projects. And so if you're looking into 2024 and you're trying to figure out what your dividend growth rate is, frankly, it's already pretty much set for 2024 because very little is going to change because the decisions are made in 2023 about companies and so forth. And there's a lag effect with the consumer. But if you're looking at, say, 2025 or 2026 uh, and the impact of the election, there are two areas. The, does consumer behavior change as a result of the election? And does capital spending by businesses change as a result of the election? And there, you know, I don't know how many guests we have online here. I'll guess several hundred at least uh, that there'll be at least that many opinions as to what's going to happen next year. But that would be the risk for the income streams is does some of the politics, the shift of this paradigm from global neoliberalism to whatever's coming next, uh, which is the kind of the main thrust of the book. And I do outline what I think broadly speaking, some of the characteristics of the new period will be, but I don't try to describe it specifically because that would just be kind of astrology. And I, I, I you know, I'm not confident enough to make those types of claims, but uh, I will certainly from a, on my day job perspective, be keeping an eye on consumer behavior and capital spending. When you look at individual companies, cash flow, obviously you need more than one data point for confidence that something has changed, right? That things have deteriorated from a cash flow perspective and then potentially dividend cuts. The problem, of course, is that by the time you have enough confirming data, it might be too late and the stock's already reacted. From a portfolio management perspective, how do you know when to get out of a stock or a theme on the dividend side before the stock price really responds aggressively? Yeah, that, that's an absolutely fair, not only question, that's a fair challenge to doing what we're doing. In effect, you know, in, in my day job and the team, that's what we're spending. 99% of our time is on figuring out different differential dividend growth rates and uh, from different companies. And can they achieve those growth rates? What are our forecast dividend growth rates? But once in a while, it flips and we make a mistake. I, the way I phrase it is that 
being a dividend investor in a stock market. Remember, it's a boutique style. It used to be 100% of the stock market. Now it's a tiny boutique style being a dividend investor in a stock market. But being a dividend investor in a stock market and having a relatively high yield in a, a very low yielding vehicle platform means that we take dividend risk. And so we turn that notion on its head. You will be familiar with, and all your clients will be familiar with dividend aristocrats, which uh, simply have a low yield and uh, a, a very good, admirable, successful business record of 25 years or more of dividend growth. It's a very successful business model. But they tend to have, if you look at the yield of a portfolio of so-called dividend aristocrats, again, very successful total return, very successful histories, the current yield is very low. And that, you know, from the perspective of a net present value, current cash flow for clients presents a problem. So we phrase it as we take, in order to deliver dividend return, we take dividend risk. And that's hard to do in a market that yields one and a half percent, has a 40% payout, lead, has you know, 26, 27% of information technology and is led by a handful of names. You will take business risk. You will take dividend risk as in any investment structure. We just phrase it in terms of the dividend. Uh, our goal is to avoid the scenario that you described, but in order to deliver what we refer to as a high and rising income stream from high quality business assets, we do take dividend risk. And that's that every once in a while we'll get something wrong. Now, I'd want to start discussing the portfolios because then compliance will be ringing me shortly after we hang up here. But if you are doing it well enough and doing it over a long period of time, you do have the occasional dividend cut in the portfolio, but they are absolutely overwhelmed by companies raising their distributions over time so that, you know, if you have the occasional cut, it doesn't affect the portfolio. It doesn't look good doesn't feel good, but it doesn't affect the portfolio compared to all of the companies that are raising their dividends and on the margin, some trading to help what we call accretive trading to help augment the, the dividend further. But the challenge is exactly what you said. Being a dividend investor in a stock market means you are naturally looking at companies that may have some challenges going forward. And your, deter your goal or our goal is to determine whether they can work through those challenges or not. And obviously, a lot of people, when they think about dividend investing, are thinking much more on the U.S. side. It sounds like you largely focus on the U.S. But any insights or thoughts on yeah, focusing on dividend plays in this paradigm shift when it comes to international stocks, which, you know, let's face it, they haven't done anything for a long time? Yeah, for decades. Let's, let's not sugarcoat it. Differential rates of growth and investor interest I was just in London meeting with companies and it is the, I was meeting with some UK investors and they were openly depressed about how depressing it is to be a UK focused manager or even a kind of a UK macroeconomic environment that everything's going down. Everything is moving to the United States. It's where the action is. So on one hand, you have a greater commitment to cash flow investing outside the United States. On the other hand, you have slower rates of growth. It's just kind of the you know, stated, stated reality. We certainly, and I certainly have interests in companies and the way you can kind of square that is many companies are global. They may be listed outside the United States, but their business exposure is towards the US. So they get the growth of the US market, but they get the dividend sensibility of being headquartered in some other loca location. Almost all mature markets outside the United States are, other than Japan are, are much more dividend friendly. So that's kind of one way of looking at it. Uh, you will get higher yields outside the United States, uh, but you will get lower rates of, of growth. And so, you know, for certain investors, that's appropriate. For certain investors, it, it, it may not be. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it, the, the valuation of the international stocks, I think, are 
very attractive on a relative basis, but you could have said that at any point in time in the last five years. Last last 15 or so years. Yeah, exactly right. Which is, and listen, at some point it works. The question is when, right? I, I always joke you, the only thing you can say with certainty is that every day that goes by, you're getting closer to the cycle, but that doesn't tell you how long it's going to take, right? It's just the, the, the reality of, of our business. As we close out here, maybe just some thoughts, suggestions for those listening as far as how to think about the proper way to screen for companies that can benefit from the future environment where dividends make a relative comeback against appreciation. It seems to me that if you're going to bet on dividend plays, you're inherently betting against tech, large cap in particular, which is the cap appreciation growth story. But how do you think there's identifying opportunities? Yeah, and I'll, I'll respectfully disagree in that I think tech's going to start paying a dividend. It's going to have to. So again, we've had a paradigm shift. Asset allocation is going to come back on a cash basis. It already has four cash, near-term cash. Fixed income now has a, a material cash rate of return where you can make a judgment as to whether you know the credit and duration, whether the math works now that there's a coupon that's worth something. Same with, as it were, money funds. And I think that ultimately successful tech stocks, those that can, are going to end up paying more dividends in this paradigm shift over the next couple of decades. Your favorite tech company generating massive amounts of cash may end up becoming your favorite dividend company. That can work. They're probably not going to be, you know, phone company-like dividends. But I think you're going to see a shift in this paradigm towards companies paying more dividends, meaning a return to normal business relationships between minority shareholders and large successful businesses. What has been unusual has been the successful large businesses not paying a dividend. Now, there, again, we've had, uh, we were discussing earlier at the beginning, the top of the hour, why that was the case, the emergence of NASDAQ, the buybacks, control issues within tech companies. Oh, yes, yes, and yes. But I think over time, you're going to see, uh, and in the book, I literally go over names of tech companies that are kind of dividend ripe. The other thing to look at, I think, is as rates of return, rates of risk move off of zero and you're looking at companies, and I have a chapter in, in the concluding chapter in the book about this as, as to what to look for. And one of the things is pricing power and control over the cash flows within the business that is greater control over your fate. Pricing power, we've had deflation in lots of parts of the old economy for many years. It only just stopped. It was a real challenge for old economy companies, deflation for decades. And then you have COVID and the supply chain crisis creating enormous inflationary pressures on inputs. That was a, a real headwind for these operating companies. They are just now, 2023 and beyond, pushing through pricing. And you can see those companies that can control pricing and those that can't. And I think from a cash flow investment perspective, companies that that have uh, more control over pricing are obviously going to be in a better position. That's just one of a number of issues. The other one is the obvious one, which cannot be stated enough, and that is the balance sheet. Any balance sheet could be legitimized in a declining rate environment. Now, again, not you know a higher or, or normal for longer balance sheet environment will tell the difference between companies. And so uh, in our conversations with companies, we're spending as much time if not more on the balance sheet now than, than we are on the income statement, because that's the nature of this paradigm. If the last decade or two was a decade of the income statement, the next decade or two is going to be a, 
the period, the paradigm of the balance sheet, the strength of the balance sheet. Go to uh, some of the audience. Yeah. And but, but maybe expanding on that just, just in general, I mean, you go yeah. back to little cycles, right? I mean, separate from SPACs, maybe also expand it to sort of, do, do, you, do you expect that you're going to see more companies focus on dividend paying? Do you see more IPOs that are not just growth plays, but just like legit strong companies with cash flow? In a word, yes. Though I have to be cautious and say, listen, even under high interest rate environments, there were funky companies that came to the market and, you know, try end arounds and Wall Street engineering jobs. So that seems to be a universal component of free markets. And I have no problem with that. The question, the, the way I might rephrase Alpha Wolf's question is, how much traction will those sideshows get when the 10 years at 5%? And I'm not going to say specifically a SPAC as a sideshow or other sorts of, I know, you know, there are money losing indices and companies that you could question as to whether they should be public or not. But I'll simply say that I think with risk rates not zero, with the tenure at a normal level, all of those forms of financial engineering will probably continue to exist. But I wonder if they're going to get as much traction in the marketplace as they did over the past 10, 15 years when risk rates were closer to zero. Again, it's an issue of a rising tide lifts all boats. That rising tide is not rising anymore. And only those boats that are seaworthy are going to make it. Daniel, for those that want to track more of your thoughts and more of your work, where would you point them to? And maybe just talk about the the release of the book and what you're expecting when that comes out. Thank you. The, the book is The Ownership Dividend, discussing this paradigm shift in the stock market. It comes out February 14th on the, all the normal platforms, and I'll be promoting it and uh, hope you'll take an interest in it. I am on most social media, not all, but most social media under History Investor, one word, and under my own name on, on DIN. And I will be uh, posting about the book in the weeks uh, ahead. And Michael, I want to thank you for uh, giving me an opportunity to discuss it here. Appreciate it, but here. Please, everybody, make sure you follow Daniel and make sure you check out Lead Lag Live on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. Take care. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.